Father, we come now to your word and we pray as the psalmist prayed, open up our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, out of the book of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would make our hearts attuned to be encouraged, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you for this passage in Isaiah. Save us, sanctify, sanctify us through your word this morning. Make us to enjoy what we see here as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, Pastor Dan mentioned the possibility of loving God's good gifts more than we love the giver of the gifts. Loving the gifts more than the giver who is God himself. And this by definition really is idolatry. Now, um, idolatry typically, at least in our country today, is not uh, bowing down and worshiping uh, big or little blocks of wood and statues of silver and gold. It's not like that today in our country. But, but both then in Israel, back in the Old Testament, and now, whatever the idols were, they were always idols of the heart. Even in Israel's day, the issue was the heart. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 20, verse 16, their heart, their heart went after idols. So, idolatry is about loving the gifts more than we love the, the giver. Idolatry is about loving yourself more than we love the Savior. Idolatry is about loving money more, loving prestige more, loving comfort more, loving relationships more, loving pleasure more, loving all of those things more than we love God. It is really a competition within our heart, a competition for our affections at the very heart of idolatry. So in the church, right, right now, in Lakeville, and all the way back in the history of Israel, before the time of Christ, our idols may look different, but the issue is the same. The issue is the heart. And the issue is always going to be a competition of whether or not you find Jesus to be the pearl of great price, whether you find him the great source of your heart affection and are setting your eyes on him so that you can place him upon the throne and sanctify him as Lord of your heart over the competing 
love of your life. Set them in the proper order. That is going to be the issue. That is the issue of Isaiah chapter 46. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 46. Our text will be verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 46, verses 1 through 4. Our teens are studying this verse on their camping trip this weekend. Um, it's kind of hard to hear them recite the fighter verse, that, but this is also the fighter verse, verses 3 and 4, for this week. And as I was preparing, the leaders kind of running through the context of Isaiah this week, I'm like, I scrapped the sermon that I was going to preach this Sunday and said, we're preaching Isaiah, I got to do this for the church. So this is perfect. We're all studying this together this morning in Isaiah chapter 46. So as you're turning there, you're hopefully there in Isaiah 46, let's set the context because we're jumping right into the middle of a context. What's going on here? Israel, right, the Jews, the people of God, in the future are destined to be in captivity in Babylon. It's prophesied by Isaiah to the detail. This hasn't happened yet. And so Isaiah is writing about the future captivity of the Jews in Babylon, and he's also writing about how God would release them from captivity, from Babylon, in this section. So if you think about the book of Daniel, that is the Babylonian captivity. Um, that is Daniel trying to be raised up, even within government, and taking a stand for the living God, negotiating with the leaders, praying, and being willing to be what? Thrown into the lion's den. Or saying, I will not bow down to this idol, I will not. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, being willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace. That is the captivity in Babylon. It was not easy. And so we remember those things. But we also remember that God, in Isaiah, before it happened, prophesied that they would be released. And Jeremiah gave us the time frame of 70 years that they would be in captivity. They would be released from Babylon, and God would do it. God would release them. How would He do that? God would raise up Cyrus. Remember? The bird of prey from the east. He would raise up a pagan king, would, uh, would become an instrument in His hands. Cyrus would become an instrument, would come into Babylon and, just, and really flatten many of the structures of Babylon and bring the people of God back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem as we read in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so this is the prophecy of the people of Israel not yet released in the future. Uh, in the disappointment uh, of being in Babylon and the discouragement of the pagan land and wondering if God is going to keep His promises to us is he going to keep these promises to us is he going to release us can we trust the God of Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob to do this that is the question on their hearts and that is what Isaiah addresses here in one word the issue of our text is idolatry because think about it why did the Jews get deported 
into Babylon in the first place. Idolatry. And what is the great problem with the religion of Babylon and their statues? Idolatry. And what did the people of God throughout the ages, even the saved ones, always struggle with in our hearts? The issue of this text is idolatry. So with that in mind, we are going to read this again faster than Jason read. But I have an assignment for you as I read, so it's going to be really interesting. I hope you have your Bible open. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 45, and we're going to read verse 20. Our text is Isaiah 46, 1 through 4. Okay? Now, there's one key word, one key word, a couple of words that have the key concept that, that hold this passage together. And I want you to try to find it as I read quickly. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 20. Remember the big picture is idolatry. Verse 20 of Isaiah 45. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has announced this from of old, who has long since declared it. Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me only in the Lord our righteousness and strength. Men will come to me and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. And now our passage in verses 1 through 4. And notice the key word was mentioned in verse 20. And it will be mentioned a bunch of times in our passage at the heart. So look for it. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that, that you carry are burdensome. A load for the weary beast. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you. And I will bear you. And I will deliver you. Isn't this fun to try to guess the word? To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me? And that we would be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. 
They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that's Cyrus, the king of Persia, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. So the context here, the context here is idolatry. And we're learning a lot about God, right? Who He is. There's no God like Him. We're learning that He's come to bring His righteousness to us. And even in Israel, the issue truly is the heart and truly is salvation, right? And we're finding a key word at the beginning, kind of at the end and repeated time and time again in our passage, and it is this, it is the word to carry or to bear. And this is the great contrast that we will see in our passage this morning. Okay, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see the the impotence of the idols of Babylon. Idols are carried by us. In contrast, we're going to see the power of God. We are carried by God. Brothers and sisters, we've got to set our eyes on this truth this morning. I know life is difficult. There's so many challenges that we're facing. God Believer, God will carry you all the way to glory. That is the great message of this passage, and we are going to sit and soak in it for the next few minutes. So the first heading then, the impotence of idols. Idols are carried by us in verses 1 and 2. And for visitors, there is an insert, and all of us, I want you to take your insert out today because you've noticed, you might notice that I've highlighted some, bolded some things and underlined some things and even italicized some things, and that'll come in handy to you as we move into that later on in the sermon. So it would be good to pull out that, that bulletin insert. The impotence of idols, idols are carried by us. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden. 
They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. And so the people of God are going to be rescued by Cyrus when he comes into Babylon, remember? And the Babylonians and all of the kings and the governors and, the, and all the, the princes of Babylon and all the wise men of Babylon, they're going to cry out to their idols, to their gods, for help, for relief. How's it going to go for them? Well, this, the big old statues of Bel and Nebo, those are the names of the two gods, the two chief gods of Babylon, they're supposed to be upright, standing there, right? Upright, but in the text, they're stooped over and they're bowed down. Why is that? Well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo, Belshazzar, Bel, this is the gods that the kings worship. These are the chief gods. Well, here's why. Because the idols are going to be flat on their back, lifted up by men as a dead weight, and laid upon a beast of burden or even a big cart pulled by a beast of burden and strapped down and impotent and carried off with the people into captivity while they cry out for help. That is the picture of the impotence of the idols. In, compare, in comparison to the holy, all-powerful God of the universe. Flat on their back, on their side, Cyrus is coming in, he's carting off the idols into captivity. They cannot rescue, they cannot help, they're strapped down on their side. The idols of Babylon, its future will be impotent and helpless to save the Babylonians. They are simply the idols of men, listen to this, are simply burdens, dead weights to be carted around. The issue was still the heart back then. Yes, they had statues, but they were worshiping from the heart. How about your idols? today. The idols of our heart. Let me tell you what those idols are for the believer. Dead weight. Slowing us down on our race. Burdensome to us. They cannot save us. They cannot sanctify us. They're killing us. They're powerless, worthless, dead waits in our lives. They ought to not be erected in our heart. They ought to be flat on the side. We ought, to, we ought to begin to ask God to cart out these idols and rip them out of our hearts, out of the land of our hearts. So, that's the issue of the passage. That's why God in verse 5, take a look at verse 5 of Isaiah 46, the very next verse after our passage. He says, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? What? You're going to love that more than me? You're that piece of wood more than me? That 
Do you have any idea who I am? The glory that I am, the salvation that I offer. How could you compare that to me? And but that's what we do, don't we? That's what our sin is. Idolatry is stuff we love more than God. How do you know that you love something more than God? You're willing to sin against God to get it. But this is what we do. We've got we've to kind of take some smelling salts this morning like the people of Israel did. We've got to set our eyes. We've got to listen to me. We've got to listen to the truth here. Is the comfort of God in Christ and who we are in Christ of greater worth than the comfort and pleasure of pornography. It's a dead weight. It's a millstone around your neck. Is treasure in heaven of more value than the treasures of a 401k? It's dead weight. Keep reading in verse 6 of Isaiah 46. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder. Oh, it's a dead weight. They lift it on the shoulder. They have to carry it. You've got to carry these dead weights. They're dead. You've got to lift them. They, but keep reading. They lift it on their shoulder. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place unless people move it. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer, it cannot, keyword, keyword, deliver him from his distress. And here's what struck me from this passage, and I think we all feel it, because we all struggle with this. If you're, right? And if you're a Christian, you struggle with it. You want your, Christ to be Lord of your heart, but you find yourself in a great struggle, don't you, at the heart level. And that's really true. And we all believe that, that, we just find these besetting idolatries and loves, we find them as Christians great burdens, great weights that we long to be released from. I think you're on to something if, from the text in this passage to think about idolatry in that way. We've got to carry out the idols, strap them on the cart by God's grace, and remove them out of our hearts. You say, how? Great question. Not by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps in idolatrous self-reliance, for sure. That leads us to our second point, where we'll spend the rest of the time. How are we going to do this? Well, First, we've seen then the impotence of idols. Idols are carried by us. And you know it. And I know it. Dead weight. Secondly, however, in stark contrast, our fighter verse this morning, verses 3 and 4. 
the power of God, we are carried by God. Second point. Okay, the main verb, look at verse 3. The main verb is this. Listen to me. Listen to me. Everything else is going to say, what do we listen to? But the main command is, wake us all up. Wake up Israel. Wake us up. Listen to me. And what we're going to, that, that, that word for listening, I, I want you to pay attention to that. One of the ways that we carry idols out of our heart is stop knowing theology in our heads, but listen to it. To really Listening implies slowing down, closing your mouth and opinions, sitting under the Word of God, both in your personal worship times in the Word of God and as we come as a church to hear the Word of God and saying, Lord, teach me, teach me, teach me. I know I've got idols. Help me. Change me. And um, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your law. That's the attitude and posture of listening to me. This is God speaking here. Listen to the Word of God. Don't just hear it, but slow down and to listen it, listen to it. A, a, a metaphor for this is going to be found in verse 8. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind you transgressors. So the idea of remembering and recalling to mind are all filled up with listening to the Word of God. And what are we to listen to this morning? We are to listen to number one, we are to listen to who we are. Listen to who we are, our identity. And then, more importantly at the foundation, who God is and what He has done for us. If we're going to have the idols carried out of our hearts, it's not going to be by, by, by simple bare commands, bare commands, bare commands. What God wants us to listen to is truth about who we are, who He is, and what He has done. And that gratitude and that understanding fuels all carrying out of the commands of God. And that's where he goes. So let's look at it. Let's look first at who we are, our identity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. Now, I could go on and on about this, but I'm just going to say it this way. This is written to Israel in Isaiah 46. Okay? God has set His love upon Israel. There is a future plan for Israel, and so all Israel will be saved. Romans chapter 11. But you say this is also a spiritual issue and a physical issue for Israel, right? Righteousness and salvation and strength. And so us... We are part of the people of God. And in the same chapter of Romans chapter 11, we as Gentiles are grafted into the rich spiritual promises of Israel. So this text, having been grafted in, is our text spiritually. Okay, got that? So when you read remnant of Israel, you are to read the remnant of Israel are the the, the people of Israel, after 70 years in Babylon, some are saved, some need repentance. They're a mixed bag. But God is going to deliver them because He set His 
love upon Israel. And so also us, grafted in, this text is for us. We are part of the people of God. So now that brings us to the second aspect of our identity. You, look at it, here he's talking about our identity. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Oh, this is so great. I hope I can explain this. This is all about who you are. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. The Hebrew text, I'll translate it for you literally. The carried ones from out of the belly. The lifted ones from out of the womb. It's very hard to translate because it's an identity participle. It's a state of being. You believer, are you ready? You are the lifted one. You are, this is your identity, you are the carried one. It implies, number one, you've been lifted once and for all, right? God came down to you, He grabbed you, and He lifted you out in the muck and the mire of sin. He's lifted you as a, a father lifts his son and holds him in his arm. You are a lifted one. Does God drop stuff? No. And you are a carried one. That is your state. It's a, it's a participle. That is, it's your state. Ongoing. You are a carried one. From the womb. And this is spiritual for us. From the time you were born again to the time you pass into glory. You are the lifted one. You are the carried one. Stop being afraid. We're, we're disappointed. We're disillusioned in captivity as exiles in our Babylon. But we've got to remember Listen to me, God says, who you are, the people of God, the lifted one, the carried ones. My family loves to hike. So I was like, oh, I wish I was at the camping trip. We love to hike. We like the North Shore. We like the mountains. We hike, we hike, we hike done a ton of hiking with our little children. Well, one thing about little children, I've got nine of them, uh, hiking is difficult with children. It's a difficult path. They get tired. They start to cry. The flies are bugging them, the mosquitoes. They get hungry. We bring water and snacks, but it's never enough. What does a father do? What does a human father who loves their children do? At great cost to themselves. <laughs> Believe me. We lift them up. We put them in our arms. And we hold them till the hike is over. Now I have a grandchild. Her name is Elsie. And, I've, and Max and Abby are over-the-top camping fanatics. I hope they don't listen to the sermon and hear that. We like it. We like it, Abby and Max. Camp away. But Elsie is in the backpack. She's protected from the mosquitoes. She's covered from the heat of the sun. She's carried by a strong father. And she's resting. She's asleep. 
She's not worried a bit. What a picture. What a picture of our great God and our identity as the lifted ones, the carried ones. And that leads us to the most important part of who God is. And that's where Isaiah the prophet really goes in detail, very emphatic. Look at verse 4 about who God is. Even to your old age, I will be the same. I want you to do something for me for a second. I don't have an insert. Well, let's see if I can remember. Take out your insert and look at verse 4. Notice that you're going to see, thank you, you're going to see in verse 4 that I bolded, even to your old age, I will be the same. Very emphatic statement. We'll get to that. And even to your graying years, now notice it's underlined, I will bear you. But then look at the next phrase. I have it in italics. I have done it. And then the next phrase. We're right back to the underlining. And I will carry you. And I will bear you. And then the next one's bolded. And I will deliver you. And so the first and the last bolded phrases uh, deliver some level of really emphasis about God and who He is. And then what He does is in the middle. And what we really need to know about what He does is the stuff in the middle of the middle. The italic stuff. For you theologians and scholars, it's called a chiastic structure. It receives the emphasis. Okay, you can put this down. Let's get into what it means. He says, even to your old age, I will be the same. The text says here, literally, even to the... Even to your old age, I am He. That's it. It's a decent rendition. I will be the same. But the text says in the Hebrew, I am He. And every one of these, look at, look at this passage. I, I, I have done it. I, I. In the Hebrew, it uses the personal pronoun. It never has to use that in the Hebrew. It's part of the verb. It's emphatic. I, I, I. In contrast to they stooped over. They could not rescue. They're strapped down on the cart. The dead idols. The living God. It's very interesting and very emphatic here in this passage. Okay. So, I am He. The same yesterday, today, and forever. I am, God is saying, I am not like the idols. I'm not like the false gods. I'm your creator. I'm your sustainer. My purpose will be established. I declare the end from the beginning. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. We've got to remember. We've got to recall to our mind in exile, in captivity, in the struggle to carry our idols out of our hearts and to set Christ upon the throne of our heart, we've got to remember who God is, that He's the living God, that He's with us right now, that He's watching us, that He's sustaining us, that He's all-powerful. He's not blind like the statues. 
He's not dead like the statues. He's not helpless like the statues. He's not a burden like the statues. He's not blind, dead, and helpless and a burden like our idols. How dare we compare the living God to the idols of our heart? Carry them out. Sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart. He's truly alive. He's all-powerful. Kids, remember last week, El Shaddai, the all-powerful God. He can lift you. He can carry you to the end. We've got to remember who God is. And we've got to remember what God has done. And even to the graying years, the text goes on about what God does now. Even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you. Can we say it again? He does. And I will bear you. Look at the emphasis here. He will bear you. He will bear you. He will carry you. When does it begin? Out of the belly, out of the womb. When does it end? To the gray hairs. In other words, to the very end. Right? Your whole life. Every moment of your life. He carries you. He'll bear you. He will get us home. And I love this. Okay, now listen. Watch this. Get excited about the text. I will bear you. I will bear you. I will carry you. There's a future aspect of it. Because we, when we're struggling with the idols of our heart, which manifests itself in sin and typically fear of man and worry about the future. So He speaks to the future for us. Don't worry. I will, I will, I will. Did you notice that? Verb tense of those underlined verbs. But did you notice the middle one at the middle of the structure, the one that I italicized? Look at it. It's a different verb tense. Did you see that? Not I will, I will, but what does it say? I have. I have. At the very middle, what we're supposed to see for the emphasis is God has done these things for us. And so... When we're discouraged, persecution from our family as first-generation Christians, maybe we've been cut down by our job to 70% and we can't provide for our family, maybe we've just discovered we have cancer, maybe we've been falsely audited by the government, maybe we've been misunderstood by a friend. Maybe our kids are struggling. Our future looks difficult. We're struggling with our idols. We're just so tired. We're just so worn out. I will, I will. But sometimes I will. We need to know it's not just about the I will. It's mostly about the what? I have. I have. It's about the perfect tense. This is the perfect tense. Which says, I have what? I have done it. Perfect tense, in the past, with ongoing right now significance, I have done it. That's God. I have done it. It's as good as done. The work of God, it is as good as done. It has been 
finished. Sound familiar? In the very last line, I, and it receives some emphasis, I will deliver. Not even you. It's emphatic. I will deliver. By the way, same word in the Hebrew is verse 2. They could not rescue. Same word. The idols can't do it. I will deliver. The living God will rescue. So when we come to the Word of God, we have got to remember, we've got to listen to it and remember our identity and remember what God has done. And if you're wondering, how do I carry out rip the idols out of my heart primarily and first the way you do it is by listening to who you are who God is and what He has done and when you are there and you're seeing it the Holy Spirit is driving it into your heart guess what the things of this world grow what in the light of His glory and grace. And so let's do some idle ripping, idle caring for the next 10 minutes by really pressing in the truth of verses 3 and 4. Brothers and sisters, get ready. Put your seatbelt on. This is amazing. God will carry you. Brothers and sisters, We are strangers in this culture. We are exiles. It's getting difficult. It's getting confusing. There's a discouragement and a disillusionment that can set in to us and to our kids. There's a cost to following God and not the King. There's so many pressures. But I want you to know the reality of this text. God has you, dear believer, in His arms. He's lifted you. He is carrying you. And He will do so until the end. He will hold us fast. He will. He will. We need to remember The promise of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began, that's the womb, began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's glory and the gray hairs. He's not going to drop you. And so we can be like Elsie. We can rest like my grandchild in his arms. There's a movement In the life of a believer, we are carried from one degree of glory to another as we set our eyes on this truth. We are running our rays, and these idols are encumbrances that are slowing us down. Let us lay aside, lay them aside, stop carrying them, and fix our eyes upon Jesus, the what? The author and the finisher of our faith. So we are children of God. 
Come on, we're also Minnesotan. We are children of God. We are the carried ones. We are the born ones. Right? Just like the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, in which I've already preached this, speaking of the Israelites who were pulled out of exile in Egypt. Exodus out of Egypt. And, and now they're back in exile at, because of their idolatry in the wilderness again. And verse 31 says, even in that wilderness, in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. I will carry you. I, 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 five times. I have done it. And the, ask, and the, and the implication that we need to ask is this. Well, how do we know? I want you to listen very carefully. I want you to track with me. If you take your Bibles, the first verb of Isaiah 46, verse 3, listen to me. Okay, now that, Isaiah picks up on that again in one page over. Go to verse 12 of Isaiah 46. Okay, verse 12, he says it again. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. Okay? Who's speaking there? Well, I want you to go now to Isaiah chapter 48. Just the next chapter, basically. Isaiah 48, look at verse 12. He picks, on that, picks up on that theme again. In Isaiah 48, verse 12. And he says, oh, there it is again. Listen to me. Who's speaking here? Oh, Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am He. I am the last. I am the first. I am also the last. Does that ring a bell? It reminds us of Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. Of Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. The one who says, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who is that? The second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16 of Isaiah 48. Just a couple verses later in Isaiah 48. Same theme. He still speaks. Come near to me. Who speaks? Listen to this. Still a call. Same person, same theme. Listen. Listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. Now watch this. Watch this. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. A whisper of the Trinity even in the book of Isaiah. Clearly the one who speaks all the way back here is none other than God the Son speaking to the people, the one on the throne in Isaiah, the visible manifestation of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the Christ. And so, we are to think then 
about the Christ who says, I, I, I. And we are to remember the people in exile in Egypt and with the, the exodus that was performed because the blood of the Passover lamb was slain, put it above the, above the doorpost so the people of Israel could go out of the land, the exodus out of the land because of the Passover lamb. And we are to remember that this God redeems Israel. He delivers who? He rescues her. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 25. Just flip back. Isaiah 45, verse 25. Listen to this. The offspring of Israel will be justified. Declared righteous. That is de that's declared righteous. They'll be justified and will glory in the future. Notice verse 24. Only in the Lord is our righteousness and in strength. In Isaiah 46, verse 13, I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. Our deliverance, our rescuing is going to be because we have the righteousness of God in Christ. He is our strength. He is our righteousness. He is our glory. And so we are to remember this theology that Isaiah himself sets a trajectory for the rest of the book of Isaiah and even into the New Testament. And so we're to remember of this one who speaks, listen to me, he is the suffering servant. And he says in Isaiah 53, surely our griefs he himself bore. Does that word bore sound familiar? Or, and our sorrows he carried. Does that sound familiar? Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. And so in time, God says, don't worry. I've lifted you. I've lifted you. I've come after you. And we are to think that the God of the universe sent the second person of the Trinity. He took upon flesh and He came down to our mire, to our muck, to our sin. He came to us. He put His hands around us and He lifted us out of the mire. And he took us to Himself. He came to us. He lived the perfect life we have failed to live for our righteousness, for our justification. He died this, the death that we deserved on the cross of Calvary. And so this makes sense of the passages in Luke, like the Mount of Transfiguration, when we get a sneak peek of the glory of God and the second coming, when He comes to seal up His promises to His people, including Israel. And he gets a sneak peek, but, but the Father says as Peter's fumbling all over himself with, his, with what to say, God interrupts him and says, listen to him. Does that sound familiar? And you say, what were they talking about with Moses and Elijah, the Christ? They were talking about, literally the text says, the exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, where Jesus would go and secure the rescue and the deliverance of the people of God, the people of God like us in exile, to secure the greater exodus out of the bondage of sin. And so he went to the cross of Calvary. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, Isaiah. And he went to the cross. 
and He bore and carried our sins far away in His death and burial. And He proved that they were carried away. Ripped away when He rose from the dead. And at the very end, when He knew, He said to it, perfect tense, has been finished. Alluding back to the perfect tense here of Christ Himself who said through the prophet Isaiah, I have done it. It is the great foundation of our hope. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And all of this was proven as He rose from the grave. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified freely forever. And one day He's coming. Oh, glorious day. Believer, He's going to get you home. He's going to carry you all the way to that glorious day. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the passage that our church is studying right now and for our kids, our teens, meditating on such great truths. And Father, we ask for forgiveness for loving dead weights more than the living God. We ask that you would show us and maybe we need each other to help the church that we would see these things and we would allow through the power of the Spirit by listening to your word through the power of the Spirit as we remember who we are, who you are and what you have done to have these idols be carried out of our heart. And may we obey the Christ who said in the book of 1 Peter, sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts. We pray that this great work would be uh, continuing to be done in this fellowship and we're thankful that in the cross, death and resurrection and ongoing intercession of our great high priest, it has been finished. The presence of sin will be gone when we see him in glory. Thank you that you'll get us home, Father. We're so grateful for this truth. Help us to lift up our voices in joy to sing of these great truths. We ask this in Christ's name.